You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 43 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob, and we're coming to you from Satrum, the Satrum Public Library's podcasting studio, The Booth, in Holbrook, New York. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The Library Pros podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to subscribe to our RSS feed, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and via our email subscription service on our webpage, thelibrarypros.com. And if you like what you hear, consider leaving a review on the service of your choice. We are also on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Today joining us via Google Hangouts is Matt Fisterer, the director of the Middletown Thrall Library in beautiful Hudson Valley of New York. Uh, uh, Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chris. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. Hey, Matt. How are you? Okay, so today we're going to speak with Matt about uh, the Life Saving Librarian Act, giving librarians the ability to stop someone who may be uh, suffering from a drug overdose. And we're also going to chat about uh, the recent Library Advocacy Day in Albany and how critical state funding is for libraries here in New York. But before we begin, let's get introduced to Matt. So tell us about your library. You know, anything you want to share with you with us about the Thrall Library? Sure. Um, we're in Orange County, New York, which is um, about an hour northwest of New York City. Uh, in the beautiful Hudson Valley. We're about 30 miles west of the Hudson River. I serve a population of about 57,000 people. It's a lovely downtown area that uh, recently received one of Governor Cuomo's uh, downtown revitalization grants for $10 million. So there's a lot of exciting things going on in Middletown right now. And the library, uh, as in all urban communities is always part of uh, the revitalization process. So I guess tell us a little bit, Matt, about how you got started in libraries. Um, well, it, it, it kind of grew out of a uh, unsatisfying and fruitless career in retail. Uh, many people in libraries are second career people. So uh, I picked myself up by the bootstraps and said it's time to get a different career, went to graduate school in SUNY Albany, uh, started as a librarian. I worked in a, as a adult services librarian first, uh, worked as an academic librarian briefly, and then transitioned uh, into library directorship. Uh, this is the third public library that I've been a director of. I had stops in Ulster County, uh, and Wappingers Falls in the Mid-Hudson Library System. And just over, uh, I'm in my eighth year, so just over seven years ago, I came to Middletown Thrall Library and uh, fell in love with the community. Wow. Okay, since you grew up in libraries here on Long Island, uh, what do you see as some of the big dif- biggest differences between working uh, here on Long Island and in the Hudson Valley? Um, well, uh, it's a lifestyle choice. It's a lot more hustle and bustle um, on Long Island. So uh, I prefer the little bit more laid back style. But the provision of library services is going to be similar uh, across the board wherever you go. The access to technology, the, the flow of materials, uh, the building maintenance, uh, all that stuff is kind of uh, universal. Uh, it's 
the communities are a little bit different here or there, but I think we're all kind of fulfilling a common goal, and that's providing these vital services to our communities uh, with the daily challenges, uh, monthly challenges, yearly challenges uh, that we face. So I feel like I'm very connected to Long Island. I grew up there. Uh, I, I still kind of feel more Long Island than Hudson Valley, but uh, it's great. We're happy to call you our own, Matt. <laughs> so. Thank you. So uh, we don't we don't often speak to directors on the podcast. Um, so what do you feel? I guess is the most challenging part of your position. Well, you have to get used to the fact that everybody is mad at you all of the time. <laughs> so, uh, that is, no, that's absolutely well, that's, true. If you can handle that, then uh, get ready for a great career. But uh, in all seriousness, you have to be able to uh, have good listening skills and to be able to identify the needs and the position of all the different stakeholders involved, uh, from your patrons to your staff, and even the differences between your children's staff and your adult staff, uh, and then be able to go out into the community and represent uh, everybody's interest. Uh, we're all working towards the same goal, but we all see things from a slightly different perspective. So I kind of see my role as director as kind of understanding everybody's perspective and trying to find those spaces where we can all come together and make sure we're maximizing on our potential to to provide outstanding library services. Okay, so it it sounds like that it's a challenge being a director. <laughs> to say uh, the it's, least. it's not for everybody. Um, and I certainly have counseled other people. I think some people feel more comfortable um, in the librarian position. Uh, I'm somebody that's always liked to embrace change and try new things. And uh, when I went into it, I wasn't sure if I would like it, but I actually really do like that ability to change hats, to be able to um, kind of deal with different people, different groups and their, and their differing needs, and then kind of come together. Uh, I, I've been enjoying that ever since. It's actually my favorite part of being a librarian has been being a library director. Well, it's really interesting too because um, it, like you were saying before, the difference between the Hudson Valley and, and Long Island regions, uh, we, we're still doing the same thing. We're just doing things just a little bit differently. And like you said before, it's a matter of getting to the same goal just by looking at it from different perspectives. And it's always interesting when we, we interview people who are not from the island because it's really interesting to hear how we have more in common with common goals, then we have differences, regardless of where it is. And we've interviewed people from all over the place. Uh, so, you know, it really is interesting to, to speak to people who aren't not on the island anymore or aren't from the island. Expats, as we're called. And I meet them every day. Um, I, several times a week, I'm talking to somebody from metropolitan New York or Long Island that moved to the Hudson Valley just, you know, for a change. So uh, very comfortable here uh you know and, and middletown is that way also very very cool so we're going to take a short break and when we come back we're going to speak to matt about his library the, about library advocacy day up in albany which is the capital of new york for those of you who don't know and uh how interesting it is to see how people from across this huge state come together uh to talk about library need and library um, financial support from the state, and also about a, a program that you're involved with called the Life-Saving Librarian Act, 
uh, which is a federal program, I believe, uh, from your congressional representative, Sean Patrick Maloney. So we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we're back speaking with Matt Fisterer from the Middletown Thrall Library. Is it the Middletown Thrall Library or just the Thrall Library? Uh, it's actually Thrall Public Library District of Middletown and Wallkill. And if you don't want to say that big uh, mouthful every time, it's Middletown Thrall Library. Okay, good. Just didn't want to misrepresent. Okay, so Library Advocacy Day, Advocacy Day took place a couple of weeks ago. And, the, and it's an event where uh, libraries and uh, library employees and professionals from across the state converge on Albany. Uh, and they meet with their representatives to remind them how essential library funding is to the state. And did you go up this year? Uh, I did. I try and go up every year. It's very important. The New York Library Association organizes a day. It used to be called Library Lobby Day, but lobby has kind of a negative connotation now, so we call it Library Advocacy Day. And this provides uh, library staff, library trustees, and library champions who are members of the community that feel so strongly about the value of library service that they take a special day to come up to Albany and talk to their legislators about what libraries mean to them. And that's very significant because that makes a very strong impact on the legislators when they hear that. So we, we tend to fill their offices with 20 to 30 library advocates, and we really do make a strong impression on, on them. And uh, that's important this year because we're facing some uh, proposed uh, budget cuts in the governor's budget. So there are, there are two major f uh, areas of funding from New York State, the general library aid that libraries rely on and library construction aid. So can you shed a little bit of light on the differences and why both are, are essential to libraries nowadays? Sure. Um, first of all, the construction grant money, that's uh, money that goes directly to um, libraries in communities to help them do great things like improve their energy efficiency, like improve their um, technology infrastructure, to fix their roofs, to expand, um, to really better serve their communities and make sure that they're sustainable in their communities. Uh, so that's one. And that's... Uh, being proposed to be cut by over 40% this year. That's a major uh, cut in the ability of libraries to maintain themselves and serve their uh, communities. The general fund money is money that's given to library systems in New York State. Library systems, uh, I'm a member of the Ramapo Catskill Library System. Uh, you guys are members of the Suffolk County Library Association. Um, we have library systems that provide vital support services to libraries, such as administering our delivery, uh, helping us maintain an online catalog and a staff uh, used to check materials in and out. So these are really vital services. And when this money gets cut, uh, many of the library systems have to then turn to the member libraries and charge them fees for those services. So uh, it's kind of a double taxation type of thing for libraries 
um, as that money goes down. So both of those funds are vitally important to libraries and, and to communities. Well, here in Suffolk County, um, libraries are primarily funded by the collection of property taxes from the residents that live in that library district. Uh, is that the case for Thrall? Uh, because I know that uh, a number of libraries and library systems, uh, especially when you're talking about the really northern libraries, North Country, places like that, uh, their funding from property taxes it, you know, isn't there, so they rely strictly on state aid. Right. It's um, it's very complex the way that libraries are funded in New York State. There's four primary ways, and I'm don't worry, I'm not going to go into a diatribe about it. But yes, we we're considered a library, a special library district, uh, which means that we do have that taxing authority on the people that uh, reside in our geographic uh, area that we legally have right to provide library services to. That's good for a number of reasons. It's good because it allows the public to vote every year on a library budget, uh, yes or no. Um, and it also allows our library trustees, and trust library trustees are people that um, have the governance and fiduciary responsibility for the library uh, moving forward. It allows the public to elect their own representatives to serve on the library board. Uh, unfortunately, right uh, the last library that tried to apply for special district it actually is legislation the governor had vetoed that so right now the state is kind of trying to figure out what advice to give to uh, libraries about how to best organize to serve communities i believe the majority of libraries in new york um, state are or what are called association libraries they're private corporations that handle public funds and usually those public funds are given as grant, so it's not a stable source of funding. It can vary year to year, depending on what their municipality can figures they can afford to give to them or whatever their municipality puts a value on that service. So special library districts are good because they uh, provide public input, um, a sustainable uh, future, and it allows maximum public input onto what's going on in the library. And what, what's usually the response from representatives or their aides when it comes to library funding? Last year, there were reversals in the governor's proposed cuts. Well, um, I, I have never sat in a hearing with a legislator that's told me that they're opposed to library services or mm. they don't believe that libraries are important. Um, that's kind of one of the good things about working in the profession is that uh, at least superficially when you talk to people, uh, the concept of library people really are supportive of. Uh, but, um, you know, we have to face some realities that New York State is facing a, a, a budget deficit. So there's always a number of things that, you know, they're juggling back and forth. And this is a game we've been playing for the last couple of years where the governor proposes cuts uh, to library funding. And then fortunately, uh, the legislature, um, the assembly and the Senate are able to put that money back into the budget. Um, so we're keeping our fingers crossed um, that will at least be held at last year's funding levels. They'll be able to restore some of that money that's been uh, proposed in the cuts. And the legislators I talked to, some of them seem pretty fairly positive. I know that they're working very hard for us to restore that money. I hope we do, too. 
Yes, because the you know it seems esoteric, but these decisions in Albany are going to have direct impacts on communities on Long Island, the Hudson Valley, and the Upstate. Uh, it will have impacts. Okay, so uh, switching gears for just a moment, um, talking about uh, Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney's uh, introduction of the Life Saving Librarians Act uh, at your library and. Uh, the library was featured in New York Times on February 28th, so that was kind of neat too, right? Um, can you tell us about uh, – it was kind of fun, right? Well, I would rather be talking about my databases and how valuable we are to the communities, but um, unfortunately, um, the story focused on the opioid epidemic in America, and unless you have your head in the sand – there's an opioid epidemic. It's hitting urban centers. It's in rural areas. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Congressman Maloney's legislation is designed to allow libraries, because this, ten, you know, we're a public place. We're as open as we possibly can be, to allow funding and supplies of the uh, drug Narcan to libraries, so that if they do, do see somebody that's uh, in a suspected overdose situation, they can um, administer it themselves. And uh, stemming from the New York Times article, I've seen a lot of uh, discussions going back and forth. Some people, when they're discussing this legislation, are under the false impression that libraries um, want to expand their roles in the community, and now we want to be EMTs. Um, I don't look at it that way. I look at it kind of in the Boy Scout motto to be prepared. And um, Narcan is just a way for uh, you to be prepared for a situation that could could occur. And it's not only libraries. Um, It's fast food places. It's any public place that an addicted person has access to. They're going to want to use where they're going to use. And it could really could happen anywhere. It is kind of sad and scary uh, because of the serious nature of it. People are dying um, from overdosing because the, the drugs are so uh, so strong now. Uh, can you tell us about um, about the act and how it sure. works, the, me- the mechanics of it, how they, they get the Narcan to you, the training and all that kind of stuff? Sure. Um, let me first give you an example. I, my training, the training I received is because uh, Orange County, New York, uh, through a New York State grant, was able to provide me and certain library staff here with the training and the supply of Narcan. So Congressman Maloney said, what a great idea. What if this was available on a national level? Um, so he introduced a bill. The bill is still in Congress. It has not been um, <clears throat> approved as of yet. I've heard that it, it's likely, it could very likely be added on to another spending bill and approved, but it has not been approved uh, as of yet. Uh, so it's just kind of a, uh, so libraries don't have to incur the expense if they decide that they want to do this. And, uh, you know, each community is different. So every library board and, uh, is going to have to make their own decision. Is this something that, uh, we want to pursue or need to pursue? And, uh, you know, in our community, it wasn't like librarians need to be EMTs here because our police, and our, our uh, EMS have excellent response times. Whenever we've had to call them to the library for any issue, they're here very quickly. Um, like I said, it's for me, it's more just the Boy Scout motto, let's try and be prepared if a situation were to occur. 
um, let's just be ready to handle it. So how many staff members are trained in the use of Narcan and is it, um, is it involved, is it uh, included in first aid kits or is it locked in a central spot? Um, when you receive the training, you get a, your own supply. Um, currently five members of, of staff are trained. It's myself, my administrative assistant and, uh, three security officers. So I feel, you know, that's probably pretty good, um, coverage as far as in the building. And like I said, the police and the EMS have really good response times. We don't lock up the Narcan. Each person after they complete their training is given um, a kit and uh, we have a contact if we need to replenish uh, our supply and uh, we haven't had to replenish our supply. Thank goodness for that. Um, So you talked about the people who are qualified to administer the drug. is is there a, a large amount of training involved with it? Because it's just it's a nasal spray, correct? It's a na- right. It's a, it's currently a nasal spray. Initially, the hardest part. Um, this is the new incarnation of the Narcan. The old Narcan kit um, had several pieces. It did require some assembly, and if you didn't assemble it correctly, you could uh, waste the drug and have it leak out and not be effective. The new nasal spray is a lot it's very similar to what you're going to find in the local pharmacy for congestion uh you take it out of the package it's ready to use um so that takes that stress out of the situation it's it does not require a lot of training at all i had one uh, hour-long training session and a follow-up refresher training of about 20 25 minutes to use the nasal spray so chris have you, have you taken that training chris i have not yet no yeah, we took it at Emma, and it was um, it was great. You know, they came in, they did their training. I'm, I'm sorry, we did it at CLS, but we did it on behalf of Emma, and um, we brought a bunch of staff members with us, and they sent us home with with each, you know, with our own packet, and uh, we keep it in our offices or in our location in case we have to use it. Well, I, I think that that that's great, Bob, because uh, you know, socioeconomically speaking, MS serves a population that's much higher socioeconomic status than the population I'm serving, and yet you're just as likely to have an opioid incident in MS Clark as, as we are here. Um, it's cutting across all uh, societal, normal societal constraints. I mean, almost 65,000 people died last year from opioid overdoses. So it's really in every community in America. Yeah, and it's such a, it's such a simple solution to, to bring the person back from an opioid crisis that um, it just makes sense to, to have people that can use this thing. Well, can, is there, a, I mean, God forbid, but is there any way to overdose on Narcan? Well, the thing about Narcan is that um, the only thing that it will do is will counteract an opioid uh, overdose. It, it, it's harmless on its own. It will not give any type of effect to somebody that has a pre-existing medical condition. So uh, that's, you know, plus... Also, people that administer it are covered by the Good Samaritan laws. Um, I have heard some people say that, well, maybe you might personally be liable. But my understanding is is that um, if you're acting with Narcan to save somebody, uh, you're you're pretty much covered legally. That makes. So, go ahead. I'm sorry, Bob. Sorry. So now it's okay. Um, I guess uh, there's a lot of advice. I guess we could have for for libraries that are considering being part of the federal grant. 
and having Narcan available besides just do it, you know? Um, so give us a little insight on that. Well, I, you know, once again, I would just say if you're, if you are in a community where you know that you have people that are using that you might be dealing with, then I think the board needs to uh, decide for themselves if they feel that that's a tack that they want to take. Like I said, I, it, I didn't identify a problem and say, I need to go out and get Narcan training. It was more an uh, opportunistic. I found out that I could get free training and free supplies of Narcan. And I said, why not be prepared? So, um, but the conversation will definitely take place in communities, uh, especially if there is the free training and the free supplies available, then the conversation is more, uh, readily available because you don't have to worry about, well, what's the expense going to be and how, you know, how am I going to get the training done? If this legislation has passed, it'll take the, eliminate those concerns. Yeah. That's, we're really thankful to have the Suffolk cooperative library system to, uh, they kind of spearheaded that in Suffolk County, as far as I you know, remember last year. Um, and they, they continue to do a couple trainings where you can come in and just take the training, get the free Narcan, bring it back with you and, and be a trained individual as a rep of your library. So um, I well, think they're still, I know they're still offering it. I don't know when the dates. Well, are. it was interesting too, in the article um, that Matt was, Matt's library was featured in uh, Kevin Verbesey, the director of the sub cooperative library system. Uh, he was uh, also quoted as saying he carries it in his briefcase, carries it with yeah. him when he goes someplace. That makes sense. It does. It does. Yeah, well, they advise you to, because you never know where, where somebody not necessarily just at the library you could be at McDonald's drive-through, and you know, or at the pharmacy, or anywhere, and this could happen. So, I keep mine in the library. Um, that's just my decision, but I do know people that do carry the kits with them. It's pretty scary, pretty scary stuff. But it seems to be um, some some of the facts of you know some of the way of life in, in the library now too. I mean, it's it's everywhere. But again, being in a public building. There are places that people can go to uh, to use heroin. That, you know they're not going to be uh, noticed. So it is. It does make sense to have this uh, the medicine available. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't make this one point because I made it to everybody I've spoke to about opioids in public libraries. Um, there has never been an instance where opioid use or even somebody being under the influence of alcohol or something else has ever detracted from the quality of library service that that's going on here. In other words, um, you know, you can be giving somebody a Narcan administration in a public library, 10 feet away, somebody's going to be hooked onto the Wi-Fi writing, writing a paper, sitting at the computer, filling out a job application. People that need li- and want library services, they're not easily deterred. They're going to get that library service, and I, I see it. Uh, every day. So um, my fear is that people are going to incorrectly think that the library is not a safe, welcoming place to be because potentially there could be somebody having an opioid um, overdose there. Well, that could happen at the grocery store. That could happen anywhere. And I'll invite anybody to come into this library and see that every day we're open this building is being used as a library and it will continue to be used as a library regardless of, of what the opioid situation is or even any other situation. That's my job to make sure that that 
library use is taking place and it is taking place. I've never felt like library service has ever not been going on here. Well, that makes a lot of sense too, um, because this isn't like uh, a building collapse or something that's this big monumental thing that's seen by you know everybody in the building and there's this massive emergency where you have to evacuate the building. How many times have you had um, a medical emergency? Uh, not a Narcan situation, but somebody has a heart attack or they tripped and fell. And you know, that's right. Somebody trips and falls. Somebody. It's it's just another one of those things. It's just another thing where you know. Okay. Oh wow, there's an ambulance here. Why is there an ambulance? And then everybody goes about their their business right. again. It's not as though um, now it's like a um, a distribution center for for needles or or anything crazy like that. It's just a way to, like you said, it's a fact of life now. There's a, there's an epidemic, and this is just one way to help people who to help pe- keep people from dying. If you have time for a quick aside, that'll illustrate my point. Sure. Not at this library. This library. Um, I had an incident where an emotionally disturbed adult was sitting at a table, but he was reaching in back of himself and slapping a woman that was sitting at a public use uh, computer station. And I actually viewed this on surveillance tape later, and I was amazed because as the incident unfolded, the woman was uh, intent on what she was doing on the public computer. I could see the gentleman slap her a couple of times. She didn't even respond to the first couple of slaps. Finally, she kind of looks down at her leg. She realizes what's going on. She looks at the individual that's, that's slapping her leg. And then in a heartbeat, she picks up her chair. She moves it just out of this gentleman's reach and sits down again and starts intently looking at her computer while the guy is still trying to slap her, but now he can't reach her because she's moved her hair out of his reach. So that woman was not going to be deterred from what she was doing on the computer, even by somebody (laughs) slapping at her. And, uh, you know, that's exactly the spirit of the people that come and use public libraries. I agree. I can't illustrate better than that. Yeah, people come and they come for the service. And like I said before, somebody trips and falls or there's some kind of incident, it's usually isolated to one small place. And it's not going to deter people from coming in. People are going to need the library. They're going to use the library. Okay. Okay. So um, it really is fascinating talking about this because it's a a problem. It's a crisis. um, And this is just one more thing that libraries can do to help people in one way, shape, or form. Uh, and like you said, you're covered under the uh, Good Samaritan law. And, um, and if it's something that you're trained to do during the course of your employment, you're acting within the scope of your employment as well. So it's not something that is beyond the pale for a librarian or, or anybody else who works in a library, uh, to, uh, to do. Uh, I know at Sachem, we have, uh, what we call, um, CFA trained people, certified first aid. And I can't imagine that we wouldn't be getting training in Narcan at some point in the future too. Because it's just another service that you would provide just giving the person who is overdosing that three or four minutes, uh, saving them the three or four minutes where it could potentially be uh, deadly by that point, by the time EMS and police get there. Right. I mean, the Congressman Maloney's legislation has really brought a lot of attention to the situation. And now there's a national conversation going on about it. I received my training in 2016, um, and you know nobody was really talking about it then. And so he's really the congressman has really shed a lot of light on it now. And I think 
it probably is time for a national conversation about this. It does make a lot of sense. You know, Chris, it would be neat to see if this expands into places like uh, like an EpiPen for an allergic reaction, you know, kind of things. It, it could, yeah, it could very well be something like that. Um, but I don't think it would be something that somebody would get from your doctor because they're right. a heroin user. I think it's more of a rescue type situation. Yeah, but it's the same concept, uh, you know, where EpiPen is, you know, into the into the meaty part of the thigh. Maybe right. maybe this can actually transition EpiPens to being a nasal spray. Something like that, because, you know, Rebecca's allergic to peanuts. So I, I relate anything that I that I hear, you know, about like um, advocacy or outreach, you know, for things like that, just to remember that, you know, that kind of thing happens all the time and happens in common places like libraries. Sure. Maybe, maybe you guys can be the new pharma bro of uh, EpiPen Narcan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on, Chris, we'll just expand the podcast situation we have here. <laughs> uh, there you go. Sponsored by. Yeah, that'd be pretty funny. Sponsored by. <laughs> guys are too nice <laughs> yeah well, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't charge for it that's the problem we'd lose our shirts because we'd give it away yeah you're right you're right definitely you're a librarian at heart that's the problem yeah <laughs> yeah it's all about the service it's not about the um the other end of it but yeah it's what we do as librarians right absolutely yeah okay so um thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing you know your information about these important topics because it really is important to talk about both public safety and funding for libraries because, you know, these are two very important things uh, for library land. Uh, so when we come back, we're going to be asking Matt our top 10 librarian uh, questions, which there are really 11, but we're not really counting. Uh, we call it the 032 <laughs> list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. And we always have to give credit where credit is due uh, to our friend Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list. So we will be right back. Okay, we are back with Matt Fisterer, who's going to be our next uh, participant in our 032 list. Ah, uh, the 032 list. Yes. So the questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com. Visit their site because they educate and inform the library world on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. Okay, so you're ready so for the first question? Ready? Chris, you're up. You're yep. up. What did you want to be when you were a child? Um, I guess like most children, I went through different phases where uh, one week I wanted to be something and the next week I wanted to be something else. And I'm sure all of them uh, involved having a lot of money and power. And uh, as I got older, uh, those things uh, tend, seemed to have uh, less value. And I was just more into something that would challenge me or be interesting uh, to me. And uh, that's how I sort of fell into being a librarian. So what is your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? Parents took me to the M.S. Clark Library in Setauket, New York, where I grew up, uh, and I loved it. I fell in love with the building. Uh, I liked the peaceful feeling of it and um, the beautiful old archite uh, architecture. It was exquisite, and uh, I'm sure I checked out some books. I probably racked up some overdue fines, and uh, that was it. That's my first memory. Matt, just for the listeners, could you repeat the name of the first library you were brought to? Sure. M.S. Clark. <laughs> hey, do, do we get paid for that? 
No, oh, hey, it's a great plug, man. I couldn't have paid for that kind of. Uh, oh yeah, it's great. And as Clark, gotta love it. Okay, it's a great library, and we still we still have that old building there, so you know it's great. And now you have your your uh, far and wide people that know of Emma as Clark. So that's right. We are all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when did you decide to work in a library setting? And if it wasn't your first career path, because most every librarian, with the exception of that one percent, uh, choose you know choose a library uh, librarian as their second profession. So what was your first career path? Sure. Um, well, as I mentioned to you earlier, I had a very uh, fruitless and unsatisfying retail career, uh, the last six years of which involved selling used mattresses in Poughkeepsie, New York. Um, I was actually very good at that. And I would sell mattresses to people and they would be very excited and happy. Um, I'd take their money uh, and invariably they'd come back three or four months later unhappy with the quality of their sleep and their bed, and sometimes they'd be angry, sometimes they'd be sad. Uh, but in almost all cases, I would say, talk to the boss, because um, I can't help you. I, I'm just here to sell you things. And that kind of grated on me after a while, because uh, I realized I was making people unhappy. So I'm happy to be in a profession now where when people come to the library, I can make sure that they get good service and they leave happy and the next time they come back, they're still happy. They're actually happier each time they come. Uh, so I would I would say that's the biggest difference between the career I'm in now and the career uh, I was in then. That's a fantastic difference because you're very peace peace at mind right when you're at work, you know. So that's good. Yeah, I, I wasn't worried that somebody would come in and and get violent. Uh, you know, now I know that people are are happy. Yeah. So I guess, uh, who is your favorite fictional librarian? It's That's a very interesting question. It's close. For me, it, it's uh, probably a tie between Siri and Alexa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that may be the direction we're heading in, uh, but uh, and Cordana, too. I'm sorry, I don't mean to leave Cordana out of this, but hard to choose between those three, though. I didn't see that coming, Chris. Did you see I that coming? I didn't either. That's a first for us. That's a great question. That's a great answer. Almost, techie, it's a scary answer, but it's answer. a it's a good answer. Good techie answer, yeah. So, what would you be doing if you were not um, working in a library? I would probably still be working in retail, being some kind of salesman, maybe used cars, maybe uh, I don't know, chasing a buck, trying to pay some bills. I don't. I really can't. I really can't imagine a different career path now. Um, I had studied when I was younger to be a teacher. I do enjoy, you know, working with young people. I have children of my own, so maybe that. Maybe I'd be doing something like that. Okay, Bob, you're up. It's Chris. So, what is your favorite section of the library? Matt, can you hear us? Okay. Go ahead, Bob. Ask again. Oh, sorry. What is your favorite section of the library, Matt? I, in our library, we're a converted train station. We have a beautiful, quiet reading area. And um, that I remember in college, I always loved to just go in a quiet place and do my work, either read, take notes, 
use the computer. Um, that's my favorite section of the li library is the quiet study section. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? I would um, definitely put a cafe in there. Um, I would definitely add uh, private meeting spaces because that's what people want. They want uh, a place that's semi-private where they can work, so I definitely would add that. Um, lots of comfortable seating. I'd really want different lighting effects in different places depending on what people uh, you know, were doing. Um, I probably would, would bring a lot of IT guys to come in and, and think of, uh, you know, crazy IT applications that we could put in there also. <laughs> Bob's my kind of guy, right, Chris? <laughs> I'm like, my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you absolutely love about your library? I love, I love the community. Um, I really felt from day one that I came here that, um, I just fell in love with the community. It's like a great, it's a great neighborhood. Um, it's had some hard times, but I definitely feel like it's, it's on the way back. And, uh, the staff here is great. The patrons are great. And, uh, I'm really feel very fortunate that I came to Middletown and I'm still here. Okay. So this is one of our favorite questions. Uh, what is the weirdest, not necessarily worst, but the weirdest thing that's ever happened in your library? Uh, I, I have a few to choose from, but I'll tell you the story of Tom. Tom is an elderly gentleman who uh, had two hearing aids, and he also had a speech impediment. And he would come here for years to use the library's public um, computers. And he would always get good customers service from the librarians that were here and he was a good patron he always kept to himself he never bothered anybody we never had any issues with him well one day he came to the reference desk and he was very very agitated he had a little bit of trouble communicating um, but we knew that there was something on his mind something very very important that he needed to share so uh, we did the reference interview very carefully with him and uh, it took us a few minutes, but he had a scratch-off lottery ticket in his hand that he wanted to show to a librarian. So the librarians huddled, and they looked at his scratch-off ticket, and they very quickly determined that uh, the scratch-off was indicating that he had won $5 million. Uh, I don't remember the name of what New York State scratch-off it was. So very discreetly and very quickly, library staff was able to determine that, yes, this was a winning scratch-off lottery ticket, and we made arrangements uh, for him to redeem it. We figured out how to redeem it, who to contact to redeem it, and then we discreetly escorted him out of the building, um, and he was. we sent him on his way to go redeem his lottery ticket. And I was really hoping that um, Tom would come back and, you know, thank us in some monetary or maybe even non-monetary fashion. But we never saw Tom again uh, <laughs> after that scratch-off ticket. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. But, um, you know, that, that was kind of a weird but happy thing that happened at the library. That's a great story. Holy moly. I'm going to go with favorite story. Uh, I, right now, that yeah, he's the winner. Holy cow, that's a yep. great story. I love that story. 
So I guess besides besides Tom, who is your favorite regular patron? <laughs> well, Tom would be the favorite if he came back, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it, yes, if he had come back. Um, you know what? I I can't single it down to one, but I will say that my favorite library patron is the patron that comes here and is able to use our resources to improve the quality of their life, whether um, they're coming here to get uh, individual counseling uh, for job interview skills or writing a resume, somebody that comes here and applies for a job online and gets that job, somebody that comes here be- and finds um, more training opportunities or something to improve the quality of, of their life. Because each time that happens, it validates the role of the library in the community. And that's what I'm focused on every day that I'm here. I want to make sure that people have those opportunities when they walk through the through the doors, um, because that's why we're here to help people uh, improve the quality of their lives. Um, I also love people that um, come to events at the library because they want to feel a sense of community. Right now, there are so many elements in society that are trying to break um, communities apart, and libraries are more important now than ever because they are a place where you can come. Um, together as a community and work towards a common goal. It's very easy to sit uh, in your living room with your Netflix and, you know, and and all that and not be involved. Uh, But the library is the one place where you still can come and really get involved in your community. So I know that was kind of a roundabout uh, answer, but people that use the library for what the library is intended for, those are my favorite people. Okay, so our last question. What are people without library cards missing out on? Um, they're missing out on uh, saving themselves a lot of money because, uh, first of all, it's a great talking point that for every $1 uh, in state funding we receive, that communities are getting $7 back in, in the value of the services. Uh, if you don't, if you have a library card, sit and think about checking out what it would cost you to buy, uh, you know, five DVDs or stream five movies. When you can come to the library and you can get those yourselves, you're talking about $100. I always tell people that complain about library taxes, what tax money can you recoup? You can't recoup your highway tax. Yes, it's great they fixed the highway. But the library, the more you use it, the more value you get out of it. Buy, you know, a hardcover book is $25 at Barnes & Noble. Check that check that book out at the library, and you just put $25 in your pocket. So um, that's the value that people are, are missing out of uh, if they don't have a library card. That's so true. It is so incredibly true. And that's one of the biggest things when people do say, you know, I spend blah, blah, blah in property taxes. Well, how many books did you take out this year? How many DVDs did you take out? What did you do? Let's, let's do some math. And usually they walk out smiling and saying, hey, you know what? This is a good deal. That's right. Uh, it goes back to my customer service point. You know, when, when do you have somebody that comes to the library and says, oh, this sucks. I'm going to go to Barnes & Noble and spend 100 bucks." <laughs> yeah. you know, usually... <laughs> People that come to the library are like, wow, you have DVDs? Wow, I can get audiobooks and ebooks? Wow. That's and and unfortunately we need to improve our messaging to our communities and letting people know 
that we have these services available. But, you know, I witness eureka moments like that with individuals every day, like, wow, I never knew that you had this or I could do this at the library. Isn't that always the struggle, though? You know, we have all these databases that are available that that our consortia or that our library, you know, itself pays thousands of dollars for in some cases. And, you know, we think we hear it all day long, every day, but the, the community probably hasn't heard about it at all, you know? It's true. That, this is true. I mean, recently my my consortium ha, uh, gives consumer reports to people. I bought a new car last year. All the research I did to buy that new car was through that consumer reports database. Yeah. You know, and I, I saved myself from getting, uh, I knew about what price I should pay. I knew the all the different features, what I should be looking for, what I wanted. And I was able to go into a dealership and say, can you show me this year, this model of this car with these features? Made my life a lot easier, a lot less stressful. And I ended up being very happy with my purchase. It does make a lot of sense. So we have to say thanks to you for being such a good sport and answering our crazy questions. And uh, it was really have, fun having you on the podcast. I, I enjoyed it. I'll come back again and say hello to all my friends on Long Island. Definitely. So You'll see them at the library. Yeah, exactly. So tell us uh, the website for uh, the library and if you have a Twitter or a Facebook that you want to oh, promote. Uh, I don't really tweet, but you can look for me at uh, M-A-T-P-F-I-S at Matt Fiss on Twitter and our Thrall library, www.thrall.org. Great. Thank you again for coming on. This is great fun. Thanks, Matt. It was a pleasure. This is great. Yeah. So, um, so that's it for this episode. But if you have any questions or comments on the show, uh, please go to the contact us section of our website, um, librarypost.com. And we'll also include links and, and photos from this and all of our episodes on the site. Uh, you can also check us out on Twitter at, at the Library Pros or Facebook Great. at facebook.com slash library pros. And uh, please don't forget to subscribe to our RSS feed, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, all the other places you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, uh, consider giving us a review. Uh, for the service of, and the service of your choice. And as always, the opinions stated by the pros, yes, the library pros, that's us, uh, and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob, and not those of the Station Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Cristofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch. Carlton Welch.